0: Hey, it's Bill Simmons from The Ringer, and this is a podcast called The Rewatchables. We have been doing it really since 2017. It started with how much we love the movie Heat. We decided to structure a whole podcast with categories, most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, Apex Mountain, what age the best. But here's the thing, if you want the
1: full archive, you can hear them only on Spotify for free, by the way. So make sure to follow The Rewatchables on Spotify.
0: Can I tell you about the single rudest thing I have ever done in my 20-year career as a professional rock critic? I have written, tweeted, posted, postulated all sorts of uncouth shit in my undignified capacity as an arts writer, an arts editor, a music editor, a culture editor, a staff writer, a senior staff writer. Ooh. My hot takes and strained witticisms and fucking adverbs have befouled several blameless metropolises. I don't regard myself as a bad boy, shit-talking, negative stars, 0.0, Grio Marcus opening a Bob Dylan album review with what is this shit sort of dude. I'm quite sensitive and conflict-averse. I'm too timid to be mean. But yeah, one time I did call up a local goth band and personally offer them $20 if they agreed to never cover the talking heads again. We know where we're going But we don't know where we've been And then I wrote about it in the paper. Rude. This was fucking rude of me. I have to say, this was unnecessary. This was 2005. I was the music editor, ooh, of the East Bay Express, a Bay Area alt-weekly covering Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, etc. The Express still exists. A great many publications I have worked for do not exist anymore. And despite my strained witticisms and fucking adverbs, I do want to clarify that those places I've worked that don't exist anymore, they don't exist for other reasons. It's not my fault. It's not me. So 2005, I'm what, 27? Let's not get into it, but I'm going through a tough time, and everyone around me is going through a much tougher time. You know, nobody likes you when you're 27, as the song goes that's not how the song goes, but you get it. I'm a pain in the ass. So I go to a teenager-heavy venue in Berkeley called Cast, where all the teenagers make me feel even more awkward. And because this is 2005, they got AOL instant messenger terminals set up all over the place so you can IM with other people at the show or people watching online. I try to chat with people. No one ever responds to me. It's fine. I'm over it. Kudos to everyone who ignored me. Excellent judges of character. My Chemical Romance apparently plays played this place once. I missed it. It's shit. So I go to this joint for a three-band bill, local bands, a pop-punk band, a ska band, and right in the middle, a goth-pop sort of band that will remain nameless because this sure as hell ain't their fault either. The lead singer's got a giant jet-black asymmetrical haircut reminiscent of The Cure, if you're being nice, or A Flock of Seagulls, if you're being rude. They got a bass player who turns her back to the crowd, and doesn't move or smile or make eye contact the whole time. She was great. They got a fog machine. They got songs called Young People in Love and Frisbee in the Rain. And they closed their set with a cover of Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads. And apparently, I get big mad. Road to Nowhere by Talking Heads from their 1985 album, Little Creatures. This is the original Talking Heads version, obviously. But the goth band valiantly attempts to cover this song. They bring up an accordion player and everything. The goth band is playing this 20-year-old song for an audience of primarily teenagers, indifferent teenagers, and also 27-year-old grumpy ass, not indifferent me, Talking Heads, one of my favorite bands of all time. David Byrne, one of the great frontmen, vocalists, visionaries, bicyclists, and suit wearers of all time, I-M-H-O. It is quite hard to sing like David Byrne, as our goth friend with the asymmetrical haircut is now discovering, in my presence... Big mad I am, apparently. I don't think the asymmetrical haircut dude even tries to yelp like David Byrne at the very end of Road to Nowhere, but the damage to my fragile psyche is apparently already done. That's very funny out of context. This random, innocent, local goth band's cover of Road to Nowhere is bad. All right? It happens. It's a good idea. This band's got great taste. It's a great song. It's a hard song to sing. A bad cover song is not a crime. It's not a big deal. Let's not make a big deal out of it. So I call the guy up, the front man, Dr. Asymmetrical Haircut. I'm like, yes, hello, I'm Rob. I'm a music editor. Ooh, can I interview you for this paper that still exists? And he's like, yeah. And I regale him with such hard-hitting questions as, what's with all the fog? And tell me about your hair. 27, and he handles these asinities graciously. And we're having an awkward but reasonably polite conversation. And then I hit him with it. I'm like, I have a business proposition for you. And he's like, okay. And I say, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. And he says, no, that's cool. And I go, I will personally pay you out of my own pocket $20 if you promise to never publicly attempt to cover the talking heads again. Let me ask you something. What is the wrong way to take that? That is fucking rude, Rob. Saying that to someone is just tremendously rude. Originally, I had an even ruder plan that was mercifully rejected. I went to my editor. I was like, can I get one of those giant cardboard novelty checks they give you when you win a golf tournament? Because I was going to do a photo shoot, right? Where I had no talking heads. Printed in giant letters on the memo line of the giant novelty $20 check. And then I hand it to the goth guy while we smile for the camera, right? And my editor's just like, no, that's a stupid idea. And I agree. I agree now. And if you want the truth, I agreed right then. The only thing worse than a stupid idea is a stupid idea with a prop budget. And so I just call the guy up and tell him, I'm 27 years old and I'll give you $20 if you never cover talking heads again. And he's just like, no, that'll never happen again. You don't have to pay me for that. It's one of those deals where he's so nice and patient and gracious about it that immediately it makes me feel worse as it throws my rudeness into harsher relief Right, Because I go, are you sure you don't want the $20? And he's like, did it turn out that bad? And I'm like, yeah. That's pretty much exactly what happened. Except he didn't hang up on me. And I was for sure the bitch in this situation. And also I was 27. I was reminded recently. Of my flagrant Mr. Bad Boy rock critic rudeness, while I was watching a nice and patient and gracious gentleman named Dunstan Bruce sitting on a rooftop in sunglasses, being filmed by a documentary crew as he graciously reads super mean reviews of his own band.
1: For the past 13 years, this band have inflicted
0: oral torture on the. (laughs) You can't write that. This is from a documentary released in the year 2000 called Well Done, Now Sod Off, which is a direct quote from another super mean review of Dunstan's band. He reads that one too. Now, if you're like me, and I certainly hope for the sake of your loved ones that you're not like me, if you're like me and you hear Dunstan say, you can't write that, immediately you think of it. Right? Immediately. Your mind goes here immediately the review you had on
2: shark sandwich which was merely a two-word review just said
0: Shit sandwich immediately your mind goes to this is spinal tap from 1984 the greatest movie ever made 1984 is the year this is spinal tap Purple Rain, Stop Making Sense by Talking Heads, The Hunt for Red October, the book, and Airwolf came out. Greatest year in the history of human civilization. And indeed, human civilization peaks with the scene in This Is Spinal Tap, where the rock band Spinal Tap are confronted with excerpts from mean reviews of their own band.
2: The gospel according to Spinal Tap... This pretentious, ponderous collection of religious rock psalms is enough to prompt the question, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap, and couldn't he have rested on that day too?
0: One way to summarize my 20-year career as a professional rock critic is that my career is an ongoing And so far, wildly unsuccessful attempt to write anything half as funny as on what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap and couldn't he have rested on that day too? So eventually our friend Dunstan does pull himself together.
1: For the past 13 years, this band have inflicted oral torture on the innocent listening public absolutely relentlessly. Forget Revolution, a decent tune would be nice.
0: Dunstan is English, if that wasn't readily apparent to you. There's no good reason for me to withhold the name of Dunstan's quite famous band right now. It's in the episode description. I don't know.
1: Everyone should buy this album just to remind themselves that there is music this bad out there. (laughs) That's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I guess this is my most likely wildly unsuccessful attempt to create a curiosity gap to use a very sophisticated professional journalism term, 20 years I've been doing this. Rock criticism, a minute to learn, a lifetime to master.
1: I'll drink a lager drink, I'll drink a cider drink, several probably, and this'll still sound like naive political posturing from a bunch of soft middle-class student twats.
0: Ah, shit, I think Dunstan just gave it away. I am fascinated, I am impressed truly about how angry 85% of rock critics get when they talk about Dunstan's band. Even the rock critics who are interviewed on camera about Dunstan's band in this largely sympathetic documentary about Dunstan's band, these critics are still talking all sorts of rude shit about Dunstan's band. Here are Andrew Mueller and Caitlin Moran, respectively, weighing in on Dunstan's band.
1: Chumbawamba in particular, I just think, are so unutterably ridiculous. I'm amazed anybody uh, takes them at all seriously. You know, it's
0: just awful, half-sampled, jumpy, shouty tragedy. And what did Chumbawamba singer Dunstan Bruce do, you ask? when 85 to 95 percent of all rock critics talked wild rude shit about his band for the entirety of his band's 30-year career as anarchist pop provocateurs aren't you curious as to what dunstan did no you're not you're not curious come on you know full well what dunstan did and what dunstan does 20 years I've been doing this, an unsubtle segue for a proudly unsubtle band. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 96th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, and this week we are discussing Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba from their 1997 album, Tub Thumper. Tub Thumping is the song, Tub Thumper is the album. Chumbawamba's eighth studio album, by the way, Tub Thumper, eighth. The lineup situation here is going to get super chaotic, super fast, so I'm doing this once, and I'm doing it now. In 1997, when tub-thumping turns into this super bonkers hit and Chumbawamba get a full feature in Rolling Stone in early 1998, at their peak, Chumbawamba consists of, here we go, Duncan Bruce on vocals and percussion. He's the whiskey drink. Vodka drink guy. Lou Watts on vocals and keyboards. She's the pissing the night away lady. Alex Nutter on vocals and percussion. Danbert No Bacon on vocals. That's what I said. Boff Whaley on guitars and vocals. Harry Hamer on drums, Jude Abbott on trumpet and vocals, she's important, and finally, Paul Greco on bass. That's circa 1997, but this band formed in 1982. This band formed two years before Airwolf premiered. Is formed the right word? Do anarchist pop provocateurs collectives form? I've been going back and forth on whether to share with you the second rudest thing. I've ever done in my 20-year career as a professional rock critic. I probably shouldn't. How quickly can I do this? It is now 2006. I am now 28. There are no excuses now for my rudeness and immaturity. I am the music editor, ooh, of the Village Voice in New York City. And my dear friend, Nate, writes a mean review of the new record from the Black Keys quite popular and enduring and rad blues rock duo, the Black Keys. They're from Ohio. I'm from Ohio. We Ohioans got to stick together. And in truth, I like the Black Keys quite a bit, even though I once described their music in print as consisting of, quote, Drums and surly guitar and burning oatmeal mouthed yawps of not terribly articulate romantic frustration, all powering, cartoonishly virile garage blues jams of prison phone call fidelity and sentiment. End quote. Couldn't Rob have rested on that day too? That's the Black Keys 2003 cover of Have Love, Will Travel by the Sonics. That shit rules. So my dear friend Nate writes a mean review of a Black Keys record. And I quote unquote edit it. And that quote unquote edit is the second rudest moment of my career. Nate's mean review of this Black Keys record is styled as a scene from King Lear from the famous Shakespeare play, King Lear. And specifically, it's an argument between King Lear and The Fool as to the merits of the Black Keys with The Fool in favor of the Black Keys and King Lear opposed. That's the premise of this 600-word alt-weekly album review. So far, this is fine. Uh, the Fool is much more perceptive than King Lear in the play, and I dug the subtext to that, right? That The Fool likes the Black Keys. That was cool. And subtle, I thought. So this entire Black Keys review is written in a selectively anachronistic Shakespearean dialect, and I'm going to read you one paragraph from it, and I'm going to ask Kevin, my producer, to provide, quote, Shakespearean music in the background for this. I am quoting myself there. And I thank Kevin in advance if he does provide Shakespearean music. And I also thank Kevin in advance if he doesn't do that because that's fucking stupid. Either way, thank you in advance. Here we go. King Lear weighs in on the black keys. Here we go. Oh, raging tempest, drown the clamor of these milk-livered black keys. No longer suffer me the cruelty of their unremitting taunt. Deliver me from the rump-fed scut of these bootless Ohioan fuckjobs, or should I not be worthy of eternity's quiet embrace? Pray singe mine ears so that I should no longer bear the acrid nostalgia of their gut-gripping rot. Okay, that's enough. It goes on. You get it. Thank you. How quickly can I do this? Okay. Later, King Lear refers to the band's beef-witted verse. (laughs) Okay, that's rude. The good news is I didn't write that. The bad news is I wish I did. Bootless Ohioan fuck jobs. Okay. Chumbawamba. Let's dispense with two major Chumbawamba talking points immediately. We have discussed on this program many times... My personal distaste for the term one-hit wonder on account of that term's rudeness. But Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba, in a deliberate, proud, defiant way, is the apex of the one-hit wonder form, to my mind. This is as random, as unlikely, as discordant, as provocative, as wondrous as the whole one-hit wonder racket gets. Tub Thumping peaked at number six. On the Billboard Hot 100, the number one song in America, the week tub thumping peaked at number six was Elton John's new version of Candle in the Wind released as a tribute to Princess Diana following Princess Diana's death in a car accident on August 31st, 1997. The full spectrum of English political sentiment from royalist to anarchist provided by two of the six biggest songs in America in late 1997. Remarkable. However weird 1997 felt to you at the time, it was so much weirder.
2: Goodbye, England's May you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace, place to self where lives were torn apart.
0: The second major Chumbawamba point is this whole bitchy do anarchist collectives form business. Yes, Chumbawamba identified as and very much operated as anarchists. Quote unquote anarchists if you're nasty. But like, yeah, chaos agents, subversives, Tricksters, yes, indeed, pop provocateurs raging against the machine and eventually raging against the machine from within the machine. Yes, Wumba also put out their eighth album, tub thumper on a major label and indeed tub thumper the album peaks at number three on the billboard album chart that is some wild shit tub thumper the album charting higher than tub thumping the song is fucking wild to me that is some pre-napster shit right there. This album sold 3.2 million copies in America, primarily, and this is rude, but come on, primarily because people wanted to hear one song. At one point in January of 1998, the three biggest albums in America were by Celine Dion, Garth Brooks, and Chumbawamba. Mace was fourth. What the fuck? So yes, anarchists with a hit song on a major label. That's noteworthy. That's ironic. That's hypocritical. Calling it hypocritical is a little rude, but yeah, rude but fair. The 85% of rock critics, particularly UK rock critics, who've said such rude things about Chumbawamba, the political aspect, the irony slash hypocrisy is a big part of the critical beef here. Though not all of the critical beef, necessarily. Chumbawamba's music can also be uh, quite polarizing. Okay, definitely no one will get mad at me for trying to do this. So let's briefly at least try to put this band in some sort of historical context. In 1978, the English anarchist pop collective Crass from the town of Epping in Essex. Crass put out their debut album, The Feeding of the 5,000, a splendid biblical title for a defiantly unbiblical band. This album does not peak at number three on the Billboard album chart. Here's a crabby little tune called Do They Owe Us a Living? Asked and Answered. Well, that settles that. Also in 1978, we get the debut single from the Mekons, from Leeds, England. The Mekons, don't get mad at me. The Mekons do not self-identify as anarchists, per se, but they are indeed a beloved punk rock collective. They put out like 10,000 rad albums They've mutated like 200 times. In 1985, the Mekons put out a super rad album called Fear and Whiskey that arguably, theoretically, invented alt-country, maybe, if that's of interest. People who love the Mekons fucking love the Mekons, dude. That editor at the Bay Area Paper who wouldn't let me buy a giant golf tournament novelty check. One time, I just mentioned the Mekons to my editor. I mentioned being curious about the Mekons. And the next day, my editor hands me a mix CD. He made himself of like 30 Mekon songs spanning their whole career as of 2005. It was so dope. I listened to it all the time. The first Mekon single from 1978 is called Never Been in a Riot. It kind of makes fun of The Clash. It's great. But there are three songs on this single. And the first song on the B-side is my favorite Mekon song ever. And it's called 32 Weeks.
2: Your life to get
0: if we're talking about punk songs protest songs anti-capitalist songs provocation whatever 32 weeks is way up there for me Man, I wish this song were six hours long. I could spend all day listening to the Mekons tell me how many hours I have to work to acquire various desirable household items.
2: It takes of your life to buy a mattress. Three days, four hours. Get a job. Get calm.
0: This song is less than two minutes long, and I think there's a rule about what percentage of a song I'm allowed to play you. But FYI, it takes two hours and 45 minutes of your life to buy whiskey. In 1980 in the Netherlands, the Dutch anarcho-punk band, The X, not X from LA or The XX from London, just The X spelled out, EX. In 1980, The X put out their debut album, Disturbing Domestic Peace, which is like 22 minutes long total, and ends with a song called New Wars that ends like this. The X proceed to put out like 5,000 albums and mutate 100 times, and they evolve way beyond the anarcho-punk thing. Ugh, this is too broad. Now I'm mad at myself. Forget it. That's enough historical context. Chumbawamba form in 1982, once again in Leeds, England, in a squat in Leeds, where they will live collectively for years. For a decade or two, in that documentary, well done. Now sod off. An early Chumbawamba collaborator says, quote, "Underpants were commonly owned." End quote. An early Chumbawamba lineup performs in support of the UK miner strike that starts in 1984. In that 2000 documentary, the drummer Harry Hamer says, "You know, on stage, I don't think it looked like we were having fun early on. It was our duty to be on stage." end quote at first they didn't know how to play their instruments at first they didn't know how to tune their instruments and they were unaware that they're supposed to they scrounge they gig around they learn to tune they pass around their underwear and they put out their debut album in 1986 and call it pictures of starving children sell records that's what it's called holy shit, dude holy shit dude this is the first song on the first chumbawamba record which i will remind you is called pictures of starving children sell records i made the mistake of playing this in the minivan and then i had to explain that album title to my kids this song is called how to get your band on tv i am inferring from this song And from this album title, the Chumbawamba are not fans of Live Aid, the 1985 global pop superstar charity phenomenon. This song is also known as Slag Aid. This song, man, this song is the dictionary definition of they didn't have to go that hard.
1: Freddie Mercury, this is your life. Thank the Lord that you were born white and thank apartheid for this wonderful opportunity
2: your hypocrisy in Sun City.
0: You know how 50 Cent's career starts blowing up when he puts out that song, How to Rob, which is just 50 Cent rapping about robbing various ultra-famous rappers with a charisma that makes clear that soon he, 50 Cent, will himself be an ultra-famous rapper? That's not quite what's happening here. But that's like 5%... Of what's happening here. And five percent of that energy applied to these precise circumstances is plenty
2: David Bowie, the price is right, with a full of compassion and a gob full of shite. Still the voices of those who would doubt. Coca-Cola for the peggies to end this turn.
0: Gobful of shite is a phrase and an image that will reoccur in the Chumbawamba catalog. And that image illustrates the level of subtlety and maturity with which Chumbawamba will be operating from this moment forward, this is quote-unquote punk rock in spirit, but not in sound necessarily. Chumbawamba are pretty much never trying to sound like Crass or The X or whoever. The bright, broad, whimsical, circusy, Looney Tunes-ass, pop-adjacent sound here is also the mode in which Chumbawamba will be operating from this moment forward. I told you this shit was polarizing. One more verse, everybody. Hit the deck.
2: Jagger! down the garden path to a place where money grows on trees, where cocaine habits are by hunger
0: Chumbawamba are out on live aid then. Noted. Holy shit. Now I'm gonna look you in the eye right now and tell you that Chumbawamba are not my favorite band of the 80s or 90s. This band is a lot to deal with. Tonally, the broadness, the bluntness, the unsubtlety, the idiosyncrasy, the jumpy, shouty tragedy, it's a lot. It's too much by design. It's like a Saturday morning cartoon went to college and got super political. This is me giving you my opinion. This is me speaking with 20 years of dignified rock critic experience. And because I'm giving you an opinion, and because I feel like we need a counterbalance If I'm going to be harassing local goth bands and editing discourteous Shakespeare fan fiction about the Black Keys, we need a dissenting voice. And so I'm going to pause briefly here and inform you that in 2010, a local musician in New York City wrote a song called Kill Harvilla. This guy sent me the lyrics to the song Kill Harvilla. And of course, I immediately blogged about them because I needed content. But I don't believe I ever actually listened this song because it's seven and a half minutes long and also the vocals are mixed way too low but i'm going to give you exactly four seconds of kill harvilla right now just for balance you ready here we go that is also very funny out of context actually that's pretty good Rob Harvilla gives a bad name to vanilla. You win this round, sir. Chumbawamba are a whole lot, man. You got to recalibrate your brain. You got to maybe turn off some parts of your brain. This first record, there's a song called "Coca Colonization," right? Right. Also, the song called "Coca Colonization" sounds like this. it's quite jaunty no hmm Wamba's second album released in 1987 it's called never mind the ballots it's about lying politicians the title's a pun you know the sex pistols the last song is a skronking post-punk manifesto situation called here's the rest of your life all caps and it's delivered in all caps as well oh! The part of my brain that needs constant recalibrating here is the part of my brain that navigates the irony-sincerity divide, right? This band can be tremendously juvenile and silly and prurient, but they are also unrelentingly absolutely serious. Chumbawamba's third album from 1988 is called English Rebel Songs 1381 to 1914 because that's what it is. It's mostly acapella covers of rebel songs, leftist anthems, etc. They re-recorded it later with some more instrumentation. And that version is called English Rebel Songs 1381-1984. to And something about that title, maybe it's me, maybe an internet-saturated 2023, I'm so irony-pilled that I can't help but read that album title in the span of centuries in that album title as a joke. Right. And it's just so obviously not a joke at all.
1: Your houses, they pull down to fright your men in town. But the gentry must come down and the poor shall wear the crown. Stand up now,
2: diggers all.
0: That song's called The Diggers Song. It was written by, and it's also about, mid 17th century agrarian socialists. So there's that. All right. Help me with this. Help me fully wrap my head around this. The next Chumbawamba album is called Slap. Comes out in 1990. Slap! So this is a song called Rappaport's Testament. I Never Gave Up. It is inspired by the 1986 book Moments of Reprieve, written by Primo Levi, the revered Italian chemist and author and concentration camp survivor who wrote extensively about his time in Auschwitz. Moments of Reprieve is an autobiographical account of various characters Primo Levi met in Auschwitz, including a Polish man named Rappaport. So here we've got Chumbawamba, and specifically, Lou Watts. Lou, I think she's the best, the warmest, the most sincere, and sincerely joyous singer in Chumbawamba. Here is Lou managing to turn all of that source material into a soaring anthemic anarchist pop song.
2: And if
0: I you hold this song in your hand and you turn it slightly side to side to see how it catches the light. And it catches the light differently. It strikes you differently from moment to moment. You got to constantly recalibrate your brain. You got to get on this band's wavelength. And I find getting on Chumbawamba's wavelength to be challenging. Or I can do it, but it requires constant song-to-song vigilance. Reconciling the jauntiness of the music and the graveness of the source material is quite difficult for me. I get critics who can't deal with this at all. And dismiss this as, forgive me, but naive political posturing from a bunch of soft middle-class student twats. But maybe that's what's snagging at me, ultimately, is this word posturing. Does posturing mean you don't really believe it? That it's a pose masquerading as a stance? Or does posturing mean maybe you do believe it, but you're trying way too hard to convince people you believe it? What I know is that this one Chumbawamba song about a prisoner in a concentration camp is just a comically massive risk. It's ill-advised. It's a potential tonal catastrophe. But it works. This song gets to you if you give in to it. You are rewarded eventually for getting on this band's wavelength. The question is how long you can plausibly stay on it.
2: Set,
0: never, Ted Leo of Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, the rad punk band, rock band, power pop band, whatever. Ted Leo's the best, and he does a great live cover of this song, Rappaport's Testament, I Never Gave Up. He ain't posturing. He'll get you to buy in even if Chumbawamba can't. But I'm guessing Chumbawamba can get you to buy in themselves if you give them enough time and enough grace.
2: I never gave up.
0: Okay, this is working for me. I am wrapping my head around what makes that song great. The next phase of our journey is to reconcile that soaring reverential Chumbawamba with the Chumbawamba that in 1992 puts out an album called Shh, which includes a song called Happiness is Just a Chant Away, which satirizes the bejesus out of Hare Krishna's and concludes with our dear friend Lou leading us in prayer. Harry Roberts is an English gangster, cult figure, criminal type who killed three police officers in 1966 and went to jail. And sometimes his name shows up in rude chants at especially combative football matches. He's a cult figure among anarchists and football hooligans, which is a fun little Venn diagram to construct in your head. I don't know why I'm putting all the onus on me, actually. Wumba often struggle to wrap their heads around themselves. They struggle to reconcile the earnestness of their politics with their pop inclinations, with a certain base level of sophistication. In 1994, they put out an album called Anarchy. And oh, goodness gracious, we're back to this. Okay, I don't think I need to tell you what that one's called. We've established a motif here, I suppose. Those are just the fellows though. Lou's gonna sing now. Okay, great. Lou will balance this out a little bit. Lou will provide a little more restraint, right? Lou Okay. in that
2: 1998
0: Rolling Stone article, At a Chumbawamba show, Dunstan Bruce dedicates this song to Tony Blair and Noel Gallagher, who are great friends and drink champagne together. By the mid-90s, Britpop is raging, right? Oasis, Blur, Pulp, etc. Radiohead is skulking around. And Tony Blair is your hot, young, cool, revolutionary-type political leader, right? Representing new labor. And Noel Gallagher and Damon Albarn from Blur are cozying up to Tony Blair a bit. Or vice versa. Because it makes the rock stars look powerful. And it makes the cool young politicians look even more like rock stars. And Chumbawamba ain't having it. Chumbawamba's getting Live Aid vibes. Which is to say Slag Aid vibes from New Labor. And so, I bet that song, it's called Mouthful of Shit, kills live. Actually, in 1995, Chumbawamba puts out a live album called Show Business that more or less confirms that Mouthful of Shit kills live. So that's great. Maybe another baseline litmus test here is whether you think that mouthful of shit is supposed to be funny or if it's supposed to be extremely deadly serious. I don't find Chumbawamba to be especially funny, but I also have a very poorly developed sense of when they're even trying to be funny. The acapella song, The Day the Nazi Died is for sure not trying to be funny. I'll tell you that much.
2: So if you meet with these historians, I'll tell you what to say. Tell them that the Nazis never really
0: went away. This song also kills live, by all indications, and it's about killing Nazis. The jauntiness is always present. This is the word I've settled on, jaunty. Rock critic overtones to this word, jaunty, for me. There's a biting cheerfulness to everything with this band. A childlike tone, to terribly serious and adult material. Is that what's so odd about this?
2: They're out there burning houses down and peddling racist lies. And we'll never rest again.
0: Big finish coming. Great harmonies. Am I kidding? I don't think I'm kidding. See if you can guess what has to happen before this band rests. Chumbawamba announced their breakup in 2012, but see if you can guess if they're resting right now.
2: Until every Nazi dies.
0: I doubt it. We're almost there. We're not quite there yet. Maybe that's the problem. Sheer volume sheer quantity of material sheer exhaustion it is hard to wrap your head around how much chumbawamba there is to listen to before you get to the one song everyone associates with chumbawamba Sheesh. last album before the album from 1995 it's called Swingin' with raymond this song's called ug your ugly houses that's ug exclamation point your ugly houses exclamation point i'm getting a real warp tour vibe here if you want the truth Check out that video sometime for Ugh, Your Ugly Houses. That is an extra '90s video. The super saturated colors, the quick zooms onto startled faces, the rock star graffiti, the super strong opinions about interior decorating. That just about sums up the whole era. All right, all right, that was easy. Uh, you may have observed that Chumbawamba have grown steadily bigger and brighter and poppier and wackier and improbably more strident. As this decade and change has worn on, whatever legit anarcho-punk DNA this band might have shared with Crass back in the mid-80s, that vibe is long gone. Might as well jump to a major label at this point, eh? So they signed to EMI. They bought shares in EMI, you might say. Hmm. The sellout conversation, right? The hypocrisy of anarchists taking major label money. With Chumbawamba, it's one of those deals that's so blatant and obvious, it's almost uninteresting, right? There's no spinning this, really. If you're a real deal diehard anarchist and you love this band and they make the jump to a major label and it breaks your heart, I get that. That's valid. If you're a grumpy rock critic and you hate this band and they make the jump to a major label and you think that's hilarious and hypocritical and disqualifying and further proof of how fundamentally unserious these people are, I get that also. That's also valid. Take it or leave it, I guess. Take it or leave it that Chumbawamba took it. They want the widest possible audience. They take great delight in bending corporate money to anti-corporate ends. They're going to take down capitalism from the inside. You've heard it all before. You've heard all the excuses and deflections and rationalizations before. But they never sounded quite like this. Now, did they? And here, then, is the split second where the football hooligan anarchist Venn diagram realigns itself into the shape of a middle finger. Right? Whose middle finger pointed at whom? Well, opinions vary on that. I don't think that image totally works, actually, but the fucking chorus works. Now, doesn't it?
2: I get no
0: What the major label doesn't change is Chumbawamba's sound, right? This isn't an austere punk band transformed overnight into a Technicolor pop band by a hotshot ultra mainstream producer. Chumbawamba as a collective wrote and produced Tub Thumping, and they've basically sounded like Tub Thumping for years. Maybe they've sounded like Tub Thumping the whole time. The difference is money. How disillusioning. For an anarchist to confront the possibility that the only difference between we have no hit songs and we have a hit song is money, a higher studio budget, yes, maybe. A higher marketing budget, yes, yes, absolutely. That, yes. Take some
1: whiskey.
0: The most disconcerting element of the tub thumping video is that the YouTube thumbnail photo for the tub thumping video is Dunstan Bruce's face. He's got the pierced ears. He's got the bleach blonde hair. He's gripping the hell out of that microphone. He is giving hot topic, you know, in 2016, talking to the guardian Dunstan says the song changed everything before tub thumping. I felt we were in a mess. We had become directionless and disparate. It's not our most political or best song, but it brought us back together. The song is about us as a class and as a band. The beauty of it was we had no idea how big it would be. End quote. Hit it, Lou. So Chumbawamba guitarist Boff Whaley and his wife live near this Irish pub and their next door neighbor would go get drunk there and stagger home and struggle to open his front door while singing Danny Boy and shouting for his wife to come help him. That's the song. That's tub thumping. It's a drinking song. It's a staggering song. It's a working-class drinking or staggering song. The Monsters of Britpop tried to write a whole bunch of these kinds of songs, right? Oasis wrote battle hymns for football hooligans. Blur wrote sardonic character studies about football hooligans and stuffy middle-class snobs. Pulp wrote fucking common people, right? I do really like the way tub-thumping harmonizes with Britpop, or doesn't. A cool thing about Wumba is that Lou Watts is the band's ideal voice on record, but Alice Nutter, who sings too and bounces around the stage in boxing gloves and so forth. Alice is the band's ideal voice in interviews. Maybe not ideal. She's the most quotable, let's say. She's the Noel and Liam Gallagher of Chumbawamba once the music stops. On Bill Maher's talk show, Politically Incorrect. Alice will raise a ruckus by encouraging her fans to steal Chumbawamba's albums from chain stores. And in Rolling Stone, Alice says, what I hated about Blur was the way the music press said it was social commentary about England in the 90s. I just thought they were looking down on people. I hate the idea that Blur talk in really condescending tones about people who play bingo and watch telly. Well, We play bingo and watch telly, and it doesn't mean we're stupid. End quote. It's Alice's job as Chumbawamba's unofficial spokesperson to get in front of her skis a lot to the extent that anarchists ski. But I get what she means about condescension. And one thing this band doesn't do is condescend. I got to hear Lou singing the other thing. Give me a second. Okay, thank you. Chumbawamba in the top 10. Chumbawamba on Rosie O'Donnell's daytime talk show. Chumbawamba at the 1997 Jingle Ball, the big pop star summit in New York City at Madison Square Garden, alongside Celine Dion, Lisa Loeb, Hanson, Aerosmith, Allure, Savage Garden, Fiona Apple, Sarah McLachlan, The Wallflowers, and The Backstreet Boys. Did Chumbawamba have another hit? No. Did they destroy capitalism from the inside? No. Did tub thumping become a dreaded jock jam? Indeed. Did tub thumping change the world? Not the way Chumbawamba intended. In 2021, Dunstan Bruce made his own Chumbawamba documentary called I Get Knocked Down, of course, and he funded it on Kickstarter, and it hasn't exactly gotten wide distribution yet, but it's clearly about the proud futility of being in a rock band that tries to change the world. Those 3.2 million people who bought Tub Thumper, the album, for presumably, and I don't want to be rude, but come on, Tub Thumping, the song, what do you think the consensus' second best song? On this album is My second favorite song Is called The Big Issue
2: Hello, spend the night under bridges
0: Kind of a talking heads Road to nowhere vibe To this one Eh? I'm into it I'm disinclined To be rude about it Over by the
2: river Down In the park Through the winter
0: But it's the chorus that gets me here, the hugeness of it, the overblown earnestness, the sweetly conveyed kill-your-landlord sentiment running through it. It doesn't sound like posturing to me. It doesn't sound naive. It sounds like a pop song from newly-minted pop stars who know full well they're only going to be pop stars for another 10 minutes. But for those 10 minutes, anyway, they're hell-bent on making sure our bosses fear the factory floor and on the seventh day chumbawamba rested We're so happy to be joined once again by the author and podcaster, Dorian Linsky. His books include Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984, and 33 Revolutions Per Minute, a history of protest songs. It's so great to see you again, Dorian. Well, oh, thanks, Rob. It's i here. Um, I think in America, overwhelmingly, chumbawamba's history starts with tub thumping, right? Like they showed up out of nowhere, they were a classic overnight success, but like this is a band, of course, that had been around for 10, 12 years already, put out seven, eight albums. Like in the United Kingdom, what was their standing prior to tub thumping? How popular or unpopular were they?
1: They were still pretty niche. They've been around since 82. Yeah. Um, Put out a few albums on their own agit pop label um very much um, in the sort of anarcho punk tradition culturally as a very sort of mm-hmm. independent very politically militant collective, although they sounded very pop they never't sound like punk yeah um but they, like their first album was like a satire on live a called Pictures of starving Children soul records so they weren't mm-hmm. they weren't going for the charts they had contempt for that <laughs> um, they but then I did. Think that they did that thing that some political bands do, you know, where Crass, you know, their music is very, very difficult and deliberately difficult because they wanted it to suit the subject matter. Whereas Chumbawamba thought, well, if they wanted to reach people, they needed to get more pop,
2: hmm. and
1: so they got some very, very minor, like low end of the top one hundred hits in the mm-hmm. early nineties. now called Anarchy,
2: yeah,
1: um, where they're throwing sort of everything into the pop. And it sounds a bit like the Pet Shop Boys, and then there's these big mm-hmm. power chord hooks, and then there's bits of dance music and breakbeats and sampling. But they weren't like they, they seemed bigger to me at the time than they objectively were. <laughs> because I was, you know, I was very political, and they seemed like the a bridge from the 80s, you know, doing something about the minor strike and Margaret Thatcher right to the 90s and actually seem to be getting bigger although not actually big
0: (laughs) sure i there's a documentary on them from 2000 and the band itself makes a big deal out of the fact that like critics in the uk hate them like there's this long sequence of critics on camera talking shit and then one of the guys is reading like mean reviews out loud like Mm. what was this band standing critically were they reviled or are they sort of playing that up for effect
1: No, they were pretty disliked. Um, I mean, there was a bit of a resistance to sort of overtly political bands where that was their whole reason for being. You know, this was a long time after The Clash and so on. And it just seemed that they seemed a bit too explicit, a bit naff, to use a Britishism. Mm -hmm. And they're they're not subtle. I went back and listened to some of these (laughs) songs. You know, they're not subtle lyrically. They're not subtle musically. Wow. I appreciated the fact that they were doing all kinds of things and, you know, anti-fascism and gay rights and animal rights and class politics. And if you were that way inclined, you know, they yeah. seemed like the good guys, but they weren't, they weren't writing protest songs like Elvis Costello or The Specials right. or, you know, it was very easy for me listening back to be like, well, why, almost why would critics like this? Because it's kind of, it's kind of gauche. There's not a lot of nuance in there. It's not
0: not at all. You can't write essays about them. Right. A huge part of the deal with Chumbawamba is what it means that they're anarchists, right? Like what an anarchist pop group sounds like. Is that an oxymoron? Whatever. Like just to orient ourselves, how prevalent were self identifying anarchists in the UK in the mid 80s and on into the 90s? Like was this a fairly common way to self identify? Like I'm trying to get a sense of how abnormal they were or weren't in the country at the time.
1: I mean, (laughs) Among groups that very few people listen to, not so abnormal, you know, in that <laughs> crass tradition. Sure, sure. Um, you know, and in the sense that they were, I mean, I don't know how, how strictly they were anarchists, but they definitely worked as a collective, and they lived in squats, and they played every benefit gig going, and, and actually they wrote songs as a collective, which might explain why the songs are this weird mishmash mm-hmm. of rock and synth pop and folk madrigals and it's almost like everybody had to have have their say Twenty seconds
0: yeah yeah
1: even like tub something has got lots of bits to it Mm -hmm. so they did they did walk it like they talked it and most bands don't want to uh do that most bands that gain any level of success um they're not really interested in um living like that
0: yeah what do you make of the notion of an anarchist pop band signing to a major label? Like is that a hilarious, hypocritical, irreconcilable decision, or is this just another way that the idea of selling out like meant the world to people in the mid-90s? But like it mm. doesn't really matter now.
1: I mean, I'm pretty sympathetic because I think if you are a band with a message, um, and they all say that your know, Regius Machine would say the same thing. Sure. You you want to get out there, you want a bigger platform. Um, yeah. Clearly, the independent stuff wasn't making much of a dent, and they signed to One Little Indian, which was a decent-sized indie, and they start mm-hmm. getting somewhere in the charts. And then EMI was particularly contentious because I don't know if you know, but it used to be like Thorn EMI, so there was a, a wing of the company that manufactured weapons.
0: Mm, so I don't think I knew that. Yeah.
1: In the eighties, it was totally taboo. So New Model Army, who were very political, very left-wing, they signed to EMI, and they had a slogan: "Only stupid bastards use heroin." And somebody actually released a record called Only Stupid Bastards Help EMI. <laughs> it was that big a deal. And then yeah. I think One appeared in a compilation called Fuck EMI. It was like a huge thing. <laughs> but then, you know, corporate restructuring or whatever, they right. were no longer connected to weapons manufacturers. So I think One were going, well, it's no longer a taboo major label. It's just hmm. another major label. And we never said that, you know, we wouldn't do that. And I think the purists were bothered, but I I do sympathize with artists that basically just think, well, what if we could get our kind of message, you know, out on the radio to America and so on, because there's only so far you can go on an indie.
0: Right. What is your sense of why Tub Thumping specifically blew up the way it did? Like why this song in this specific moment, did it turn into like a chart topping, you know, global sensation?
1: I don't really know. I think I know a little bit in Britain, you know, support from key radio DJs, an album with a bit more marketing push behind it. Why Mm. I was speaking in America really confuses me because (laughs) it's a very British song. And on the album, there's like songs based on football chant, sampling a Ken Loach film, quoting the Mm. shipping forecast. It's like ultra British. It's all the things that you're not meant to do if you want to be successful in America. So I don't actually know the kind of radio marketing path that made it so big, because it's, it's obviously got a massive hooky chorus. But a lot of the songs on Anarchy have absolutely enormous choruses. Yeah. They, they're basically very good at writing these huge anthemic choruses that they would then repeat many, many times. And this one... I don't know why, because it's 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 pretty eccentric. The lyrics yeah. are not the chorus is easy to understand, but the connection between that and the lyrics elsewhere,
2: mm-hmm. not
1: necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I remember just being absolutely <laughs> bewildered because it's not it's not yeah. a focusing of their sound or anything. You know, no. it's got it's got this kind of very angelic sounding folk bit where they're quoting Danny Boy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then it's got this oi-oi football lad chorus. And then a list of drinks and then a trumpet solo (laughs) and a kind of bit of like 90s dance music pulse. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like a lot of their songs, you know, it's a, it's a real medley of bits.
0: Right.
1: I mean, I don't know if you, did you, did you understand why, why it was big in
0: America? I don't first of all it's very clarifying. I really like your thing that like you divide a song up into eight parts and every member of the band like gets a part, right? Like it that makes a lot of sense to me that these are songs written collectively and they are just jamming eight personalities into one pop song. Like that makes an absolute a lot of sense to me. I'm in nineteen ninety seven. What I'm on college radio, right? And like this makes sense to me. As like, I don't mean this in a mean way, but like a novelty hit, right? Like, it's so random... And it's so joyous. And you've never heard anything like it, probably if you're living, if you're in a college radio station in Ohio, like it just, it just strikes you as a completely new thing. But it also has like a jock jam type energy, right? Like it's a football chant, but it also works for every sport, every sporting event I've ever been to in America for the last 20 years has played this song. Like I get it on that level.
1: Well, maybe it's like, you know, Blur's song too. It's like if you write, if you accidentally write your sports rock. You know, then that that'll work in America. And I think they were I think they were trying to be maybe more about people, more less explicitly political. So it's sort of about um sort of working class dignity and resilience.
0: Exactly. Um
1: and it's sort of rooted in us pubs and I suppose football culture, but you know, with a political subtext to it, and the album version sure. has a, a sample from Brass Stuff, which I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. remember the night yeah. of Pete Postlethwaite, and it's a film about, um maybe during the minor strike, it's about a, a brass band, um, and he's talking about, you know, people. It's a real humanist film, and I suppose yeah. this was like their, their most broadly humanist song, that the political mm-hmm. spirit was something that was not nailed to a particular issue you know they did a song that i really like by them called homophobia you you can yeah, guess what yeah. that's about mm-hmm. um and this was this was broader so if you if you knew the context it was very chumbawamba but if you didn't yeah. know the context it just works as in a kind of you, you know you get knocked down you get up again this is a very uh, human,
0: <laughs> human universal experience. yeah i wonder i'm trying i'm thinking about how America received it. And I wonder if Britpop has something to do with it. You know, like it's the, the biggest days of Blur, Oasis, et cetera, are kind of over by 1997. But I think we were primed in America to be a little more receptive. You know, like we listened to a lot of Blur songs with a lot of references that we didn't really understand if we'd never actually been to the UK, mm. right? So maybe that helped as well. America received this song, even if we didn't get all the references buried in the song.
1: I mean, it's the fact that it's like, it's the boisterousness of it, which mm-hmm. seems to translate. I mean, it's not Brit, I can't really think of a Brit pop um, song or band that sort of sounds like that chorus. No. A, lot, a lot of times they've got the. I was trying to say, trying to describe to myself what some of these songs are like, Petrol Boys Meets Oasis, but it doesn't really mm-hmm. sound like Oasis, even these other big rock choruses. Right, But yeah, many people were ready for that. I do remember around the, the, the late 90s, there were loads of, um, just loads of one-hit wonders.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. songs like, I mean, probably, you know, most of which you've probably already done on the podcast. But, you know, I know Len's Still My Sunshine. It's just a song of people like. It wasn't like people yeah. had a big investment in Len. <laughs> I don't know any other Len songs, but people like that. And there were, there were quite a great few song. in yeah. Britain as well. Um, Your Woman mm. by White Town, which is this guy working in yeah. the shed, basically goes to number one. Yeah. So yeah, it was. I. Don't, it was like a weird appetite for stuff that just sounded um, very direct and very different. And the whole. Yeah. And the, and people just didn't need a narrative. They didn't need to know the story of this band, which is funny because Britpop was so much about narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. Where you're from, which part of the country? class, mm-hmm. which bands you're arguing with, which bands you're going out with. And for most people, even in Britain, Chumble had literally no backstory.
0: Sure. Right, I in the mid '90s when Britpop is huge and Tony Blair is ascendant, right? Like there's a synergy there. Like Noel Gallagher, Damon Albarn are like dropping by 10 Downing Street. There's photo ops. Like in retrospect, did that mean anything? Britpop's flirtations with politics. Like did any of that feel momentous and transformative in real time, or was it all pretty much bullshit even at the time?
1: Like it felt more significant, than I think it probably was because actually Damon Albarn refused. Uh, to have anything to do with Blair. He was asked, but he didn't. Oh, okay, so it, okay. it, was, it was Noel Gallagher and right, Alan McGee from mm-hmm. Creation Records that went to the, right. okay. the number 10 party. Noel Gallagher was the one that made a big statement at the Brit Awards about the importance of Tony Blair. So there was mm. some... Blair's actually talked about it quite a lot in various like oral histories of the 90s and so on. And it was, like, it was just one thing they were doing, that they noticed there was all this stuff happening. Britpop was part mm-hmm. of it, but there's also Brit art and cinema, movies like Trainspotting, yeah. fashion. And it just seemed like those people in interviews, those creatives would, would say they were looking forward to a Labour government. And so there was some outreach and mm. some sense of, like, there were, you know, new Labour-loving actors and musicians and so on. The music was pretty skeptical overall, the idea that you would be courted by a politician, and because he seemed, you know, he did seem very like suspiciously slick.
2: Hmm.
1: And so yeah, not many people went for it. I mean, to Mel Gallagher is very much a kind of centrist, maybe center-left, but he's not yeah. in any sense really like a lefty.
0: Um
1: <laughs> so yeah. so, it, so it seemed like there was this big connection because this photo was so famous of Noel and Blair. Mm-hmm. And yet when you sort of dug into it, it's like, well, how much did people actually do? <laughs> how much connection was there between music and politics? It was more like a mm. mood, this incredible... Um, I'm going to have to rap about the 90s, but, you know, this incredible Please. sense. <laughs> if I can do this here. In, <laughs> in Britain that you had all of this stuff happening in, in multiple cultural fields, optimism in the football team as well, and everything mm-hmm. happening. And at that very same time, you're approaching the end of a dying Tory government. Right. And the, an election was on the way. And so I remember that there was a sense for a good two, maybe three years, that they were already there. Hmm. The, part of my memory says that Labour were in power during the height of Britpop. And they just weren't. Hmm. But there was a sense that sort of spiritually they okay. were. Right. And so it's this sort of great optimism about change and youth, which had maybe not that much to do with, you know, Labour's policy platform or actual firm connections between these individuals.
0: Yeah, I get it. Uh, In that era, like the most famous Chumbawamba, like prank or statement or whatever, they're at the Brit Awards at the height of tub thumping. And one of them throws water on the deputy prime minister, John Mm. Prescott. And there's these famous photos of John, like looking soaked and like super pissed. Like, first of all, why did they do that? Like, did they do that to John Prescott specifically? Or was he just, did he just happen to be there? And that was like the representative of like the government as a whole.
1: Oh yeah, I think it was the representative of the government that there was, a, um, there was a dock strike in Liverpool and the government was very unsympathetic to it. And there was this general sense among musicians, much less left-wing than Chumbawamba, that uh, you know, Le- New Labour had been a terrible disappointment. There was an NME cover in early 98, which uh, has said, ever had the feeling you'd been cheated that the Sex Pistols mm, line. Sex Pistols,
0: right. And they are complaining
1: yeah. about student tuition fees and um, various sort of authoritarian law and order innovations. Mm-hmm. And there was very much a sense of like, oh, we got very excited about getting the Tories out. but Actually, we don't like these people that much. And General Womble would never have been enthusiasts for no. New Labour. And I think that they saw that as an opportunity to make a political statement because they had the big hit that they were playing. And they mentioned the mm-hmm. dock strike in the they, they had did, to change the lyrics. Right. Yeah. Uh So it was just, it was opportunism. And also, I think because of, which we discussed last time, the, when I did the Common People episode, the um, Jarvis Cock and Michael Jackson incident, it mm-hmm. was a period <laughs> where it felt like you could do really interesting things at the Brit Awards, which no sure. no, is no longer the case. <laughs> and yeah. uh, obviously some people thought this was incredibly you know, childish and trivial.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Which I mean, kind of was. You pour in the bucket, of water or someone's yeah. You're egg. just
0: dumping water on somebody. Yeah, that's that's the extent of the statement. Yeah. But I
1: wonder whether that's the payback. Like, if you sign to a major label in order to get out there and not compromise your politics, mm-hmm. then once you have the big hit, you have to <laughs> signal,
0: yeah, that okay. you haven't
1: sold out your. <laughs> your values. So I guess it kind of worked as a statement for them as well. Sure. I,
0: I, keep, I keep thinking, like, asking were Chumbawamba successful is the wrong question. But I do wonder, to your mind, what effect hub-thumping had ultimately, like culturally or politically. Did they get their message out? Did it resonate? Did they educate people? Did they radicalize some people? I
1: mean, it seems unlikely that most people would have gone back into the catalogue. And I was looking at the sales. I didn't realize that Tub Thumper, the album, had sold over like three million in the States. But then I remembered Mm -hmm. that in the 90s, if you wanted the single, you bought the album.
0: Exactly. This is pre-Napster, which is very important. Yes.
1: But having got the album, you think, okay, there's some interesting songs on there about different political issues, and maybe people um, investigated them. But, I mean, you can't really say it had this sort of massive influence in the way that, you know, the clash or raise against the machine, where they did have the narrative, they had a whole, they had a whole career, mm-hmm. they had album after album. What they did, I think, which I find quite impressive, is the way that they used the money. It's like they made a lot of money and they gave it to right. good causes, and they had, mm-hmm. uh, I think, a song on a General Motors ad,
2: mm-hmm. which they
1: then gave to General Motors workers. And people Union people, against yeah, the, yeah, which is like, well, that's a, that is a that is the best thing to do if you're going to take the money mm-hmm. and then give it to people who hate the company that gave you the money. <laughs> I think that's that's, that's legit. legit. Yeah, and they didn't chase another song like that. They went very, they sort of went back to folk influence right, stuff right. after that, um, and then they put out, you know, they put out very specific songs targeting various politicians. So I felt that they were, they used it in the best way. They basically had yeah. a good time, which is very important because Crass broke up because they never had a good time. They never had any money. <laughs> they all lived together in the same house. They were yeah, constantly right. arguing about politics. Like it wasn't fun being in Crass. Right,
0: right.
1: And I think with One, yeah. Wamba, they were like, well, let's, let's sort of enjoy this. Let's go and play in different places around the world. But yeah. use the money for for useful causes that they basically couldn't have afforded. It's one thing to go and play a benefit, and it's another to give, a, you know, to give a charity or an activist organisation a big lump of cash, mm-hmm. of tub thumping money. Yeah. So I think it worked for them because they didn't want to be long term successful. It seemed mm-hmm. yeah. they, they, they they they'd been together for. 15 years without having a massive hit. And this was right. probably such a freakish, <laughs> unrepeatable thing mm-hmm. that they approached it in quite a sane manner and went, well, let's just enjoy it while it lasts because then it will be over, uh, which in, which indeed it was. But I mean, yeah. bands don't sound like jumble Up. Nobody sounds
0: like this. It's true. It's absolutely true. There's no musical
1: footprint. They're such a weird entity, which is why I think I love the fact that they had this one yeah. enduring mega hit, because otherwise they'd just be a kind of side note mm-hmm. um, in the history of like British, essentially just yeah. British protest songs. Right. And thanks to this, like, the, they're known by loads and loads of people, if only for that one song, and they were always very gracious about it. They didn't go, oh, we hate our hit. They were like, this is, this is wonderful.
0: Yeah. This has been great, Dorian. You've really helped me understand this. <laughs> it's a very,
1: very Yeah, it's a very odd, very British story, this
0: one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's great too. And it's I that's very funny to me that Crass broke up. So you're just like, this isn't fun. Like this is where's you know, this sucks. You know, like it's Jumblewamba sound like they're having fun all the time. Even if they're not, like there's a joy radiating from them, which is itself very abnormal from rock bands, right?
1: Yeah. And and they did, they they just did what they said they were going to do. I mean, I do, there are a few songs that I'm still really fond of, you know, Mm. where they would respond to something. They'd respond to like a bit of homophobic legislation or they'd respond Mm -hmm. to um, the rise of the far right in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which now seems like a very minor rise of the far right, but it it felt big at the time. And they would be the, the guys who would be there and they would have a big, you know, big catchy song about it, and they turn yeah. up at the demos and and all of that. And there was mm. something that obviously critics don't like that <laughs> that much. It's <laughs> not very cool. Um, but looking yeah. back, it's like if you look at the list of causes they championed, they would totally pass the twenty twenty three test.
0: Of course, of course.
1: You know, they were doing all of the stuff um that you know, sort of bands now talk about.
0: No, I was listening to their song, you mentioned Homophobia, which is from 94, I think, and I was listening to that like yesterday and I was like, wow, like that's, it's very impressive, you know, that they're writing songs about this and like addressing that issue so head on, you know, 20, 25 years ago.
1: And there's one called Enough is Enough, which was the Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. anti-far-right one where they had a rapper called MC Fusion on it. And one of his hooks is Give the Fascist Man a Gunshot, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's quite um that's fairly outspoken and blunt for sure. a, you know, a kind of hit single.
0: Yeah. But they did it.
1: So they were doing they were doing they were doing the thing that they um had set out to do, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much, Dorian. This has been wonderful. It's great to have you back. Thanks a lot, Rob. Pleasure. Thanks very much to our guest this week, Dorian Linsky. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Pooler and Justin Sales. Thanks to Chloe Clark for additional production help. Uh, I have a book coming out on November 6th called Songs That Explain the 90s. It is available for pre-order now. Uh, You should check that out. Uh, And thank you very much for listening. And now, without further ado, please go listen to Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba.
2: We'll see you next week.